This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, uh, we're doing a two-for-one special because for the very first time in the august history of this podcast, we're bringing on two guests at once. And the reason we're doing this is because I wanted to talk about my new favorite pod, American-ish, which brings together two Middle Eastern women, first-generation immigrants to these shores from wildly different backgrounds. Adela Kochab is a Syrian-Lebanese Jew hailing from Mexico City, while Mariam Waba is Egyptian and a Coptic Christian. And together, they talk about love, culture, religion, everything in between. The daughters of the diaspora, as they call themselves, and it's pretty awesome. I'm a huge fanboy. And we're going to get into all of that and more on this podcast. But first, uh, let's set this up. So we're recording this episode a few days before it drops. And by the time it does drop, it's going to be the week before the anniversary of the biblical exodus from Egypt. So mark your calendars, everybody. Anyway, in the Jewish tradition, the Sabbath right before that anniversary is called Shabbat Hagadol, which in Hebrew means the great Sabbath. Now, look, I get why the exodus was great, like literally the most cinematic sequence in the entire Bible, maybe in like Western Civ. But what was so great about the weekend before, right? It was probably just a lot of packing and stuff. Now, The traditional answer is that, biblically speaking, what actually happened over that weekend was that the Israelites prepared to bring the Passover sacrifice, and in so doing were courageously flaunting their monotheism, their belief in the God of the Bible, in front of Pharaoh and his people, who were the Israelites' masters and who most likely would punish them for it. And the great miracle was that the Israelites kind of made it through this whole process, offending the cultural supremacy of the Egyptians, and somehow managed to bring the Passover sacrifice unscathed. Now, look, it's a great miracle. And I can safely say that I personally have not performed any miracles as great as that. So I'm not taking shots. But I mean, guys, like, come on, what are we even talking about here? Like, literally the next week we're talking the miracles of the plague of the firstborn, the splitting of the Red Sea. I mean, those are great miracles. Like, not getting killed while worshiping God is important and all. But come on, like, that's why this Sabbath is the great Sabbath? Like, seriously, what makes this miracle on this Sabbath great? Now, the best answer I've ever encountered to this question was offered by my uh, great-great-grandfather, Rabbi Yoshua Baumel. He was actually my grandfather's teacher, just as my grandfather was my teacher. So he has a very special place in my heart. And he pointed out that of all the miracles of the Exodus, this was the only one in which the Israelites achieved salvation without any of the Egyptians being hurt because of it. The 10 plagues ravaged Egyptian society. The Egyptians drowned en masse in the Red Sea. And don't get me wrong, they deserve their punishment. Those were necessary miracles for which we give great thanks to God. Just read the Bible, the Song of the Sea. But in contrast, the miracle of the Great Sabbath wasn't at anyone's expense. The Israelites were able to exhibit the courage of their religious convictions without anyone being hurt for it. And so while the plagues and the parting of the sea were certainly more spectacular miracles, It was the miracle of the great Sabbath that was truly great, because greatness is not about putting others down. It's about aspiring to raise ourselves even higher. And I think this lesson is more essential for our society, particularly American society, which I know best, than at any moment in recent memory. I mean, we're deeply divided politically, culturally, even economically, and it's so easy to fall prey in an environment of that sort to zero-sum thinking, where what's good for me is bad for you and vice versa, so the important thing is to get mine. 
And I think one of the most urgent tasks we can undertake at this moment is to push back against that sort of thinking, to come together, not through a melting pot where we pretend that we're all the same, but through discovering what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory called the dignity of difference, that each of us brings our own unique stories, talents, and strengths to the larger project of building a better civilization. And so that's why I brought on the hosts of my new favorite podcast, American-ish, who are doing just that. Adela and Mariam come from very different backgrounds, though perhaps more similar than you might first think, which is part of the fun of the pod. But they're doing the critical work of coming together, not despite difference, but leveraging their differences. And it's just amazing to see. So without further ado, guys, welcome to Good Faith Effort. Adela and Mariam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ari. So nice to see you again. Yeah, we're talking. So Mariam, let's start with you. If you had on your bingo card... Like, I, I imagine if you looked at your bingo card from even a year ago, let alone five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, I can't imagine co-hosting a podcast with a Syrian Lebanese Jew <laughs> who moved from Mexico City was on the bingo card. So how did this come to path? And both of you, feel free to jump in. Like, how did you discover each other? What, what a wonderful <laughs> question and a wonderful note to start off on. First of all, None of this is on my bingo card. I feel like my life is a series of accidents, um, like ending up in the U.S., ending up with Adela. But a friend, a mutual friend of Adela and I introduced um, us because she had separate conversations with us. And it seems like we were, we had like the same talking points. We were talking about identity crisis and trying to find a place in America and loving America, but being confused because of this layered identity that that doesn't necessarily lend itself to ease and the work that we do. So she she made us get lunch together, which was lovely, and uh, we showed up wearing the same exact thing. We had we had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> like I didn't. I only knew her first name, Adela. I didn't have any of her social media, nothing. And we sh- showed up wearing the same exact outfit. So we we knew it was meant to be. Yeah, actually. Um, and then the second time we met, it was over Zoom, and we were also wearing the same outfit. We were wearing <laughs> dark quarter vests. Um, also, I, I want to make it clear that the outfit. That- I think you guys just need to get new clothes, is what I. <laughs> Maybe no, I think we're on the same wavelength. No, and, and and the first outfit we wore that was the same, like it was like the same brand, like it was like the same Zara turtleneck with the same that, like it, we're not talking like oh we wore similar outfits. And then when we actually did get together to do the podcast we showed up to the first photo shoot we were both wearing the beige sweater with jeans and white sneakers and we're like okay we're just we're just running with it at this point (laughs) i noticed that it was like the picture in the jewish journal i was like well i'm assuming they're coordinated by the photographers (laughs) turns out (laughs) no we we just happen to be on the same page for most things almost everything That's amazing. So I want to start with you guys, because what makes this podcast so interesting is first and foremost, your perspectives, your wisdom, your genius for the areas that you discuss in your synergy. But what kind of hooked me into the podcast and what I imagine hooks people into the podcast before they get to know you is just you both have from a like an average American, average Joe on the street perspective would be unusual. Right. So, Adele, let's start with you. What's your story? How did you get to where you got? Like, where are you from? What's your background? So thank you. It's really long story. But basically, my family was in Syria and Lebanon. And as Jews do, we had to flee. And they kind of went everywhere. (laughs) 
I uh, we went kind of everywhere we could. Uh, we were accepted. So I have family in Brazil and France and London and Montreal, but my family ended up in Mexico City specifically. It's just like a fun centuries-long relay race. You yeah, know. we love that. Like they're like, oh, you have family in Brazil. I'm like, yeah. Doesn't every person who's been exiled? Um, but yeah, so we we ended up in Mexico and then we moved to the U.S. in 2001. I grew up in a Syrian Jewish community, super small, super bubbled. I don't know if you're familiar with Deal, New Jersey. But I'm from Deal. Halabim. Ha- yeah. Well, Halabi or Shami, it depends. I'm Halabi on my dad's side, Shami on my mom's side. And God forbid, <laughs> I'm a unity marriage right there. As long as it's not pronounced Halavi, like you're not dairy, right? No, no, I'm not dairy. <laughs> I, I, I recently learned that Ashkenazim say Fleshich when it comes to being meated. We say meated. We just say I'm meated. But um, yeah, then I, I went to NYU and very long story. There was a ton of anti-Semitism. An Israeli flag was burned. They physically assaulted and battered a Jewish student. They were arrested by NYPD. And then the school gave an award to the group that did this. I ended up suing NYU for anti-Semitism. And at the time, religion wasn't protected under law. So um, my case, they told me, was going to lose. I ended up helping prompt an executive order to change Title VI of the Civil Rights Act to include Judaism under its protections. So that's how I started with that. And now I'm in law school at Yeshiva University, Cardozo, pursuing my dream of becoming a religious liberties litigator. That's amazing. Okay, well, so, <laughs> man, I have to like, I have to do cooler stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. That's amazing. You're such a rock star. But incredibly enough, this is like John and Paul deal because... Like, after that John Lennon story, we have Mariam's Paul McCartney. Like, Mariam, you also have this <laughs> unbelievable background. So, first of all, I'm a humongous dork. So, on the shelf right downstairs, I have my introduction to Sahidic Coptic, uh, which I'm, like, making my way through. So, Coptic is on my radar. But I would venture to guess that for most of our listeners, Jewish and non-Jewish, um, including for many Christians among our listeners, I don't know how much Coptic Christianity is on their radar. So first of all, can you tell us, tell us a little bit about your background. Tell us about, I mean, the, the Copts are sort of like the indigenous Egyptians. So tell us a little bit about Coptic Christianity and tell us a little bit about your background. Like how did you get on this obvious trajectory where you were destined to meet Adela somehow, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obvious, uh, of course. But before I, I get into it, I want to say the first time Ari and I met was actually on a Zoom call. I don't know if you recall. Of course I remember. For a Tikva working group. And I introduced myself, I was second to last, and then you were last. And I mentioned that I'm Coptic, I was, I was the Copt in the room, and you were like, oh, I'm, I'm studying Coptic. And you like showed me your book, yep. <laughs> and you have no idea how happy it made me because I, somebody knew who I am. Like, not me, Miriam, but me, Coptic Christian. And it felt so good to be seen and recognized, and things just felt good in that moment. It was meant to be. We had you over at our house. I mean, like, you're amazing. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. You did have me over at your house. It was lovely. You bought me a chocolate croissant. Yes. Anyways. <laughs> um, so I grew up Coptic Christian. Copt, the word Copt is actually a Greek word meaning Egyptian. It's ancient Greeks used to say to refer to the ancient Egyptians. And um, 50 to 60 AD, Mark, St. Mark the Evangelist traveled to Alexandria and began to evangelize, hence St. Mark the Evangelist. Um, what an incredible coincidence otherwise. Right? <laughs> right? It's, it's like he almost made it on purpose. Right. <laughs> um, 
So he began to evangelize them because the ancient Egyptians had these complex ideas of a afterlife and a forgiving God. They quickly began to convert to Christianity and the Christians of Egypt became known as the Copts because the Egyptian and Christian became synonymous. Um, around six, the 6th century, the 7th century, when the Arab invasion took North Africa and Arabia by storm, people began converting either by force or because they didn't want to pay a tax or they didn't want to be a dhimmi, which is a second-class citizen. And the Egyptians of Egypt, the Copts, kind of be slowly became a minority, and Egypt went from being around 85% Christian, 85% Copt, to now being somewhere between 6 to 15%. The, the numbers largely debated because there's really no way to count. And to this day, uh, Egypt has a Christian Coptic minority community, and they're the largest minority in Egypt and largest minority Christian community in the region. And unfortunately, ever since, I would say, the past century, there has been a mass exodus of Copts and other minorities from the region, as Adela mentioned, because the region has been not kind to to its minorities. And my family immigrated to uh, the U.S. in 2007 when my mom actually won the diversity lottery visa. So being Unreal. here is is a lottery <laughs> and we won. My family lost, by the way, just putting that out there. <laughs> yes, that was our first episode, winning versus losing the lottery. Wow. Yeah, and I studied at Fordham University in New York, uh, Middle East studies, Jewish studies, and Arabic. And actually, I went to Israel for the first time during my time at Fordham. And I'm currently at the Philos Project uh, doing really cool stuff that we can get into. So actually, it's a good transition point because the Philos Project, huge fans, by the way, uh, shouts to the Philos Project. Uh, one of the things that temperamentally, ideologically, intellectually, I feel like attracts me to groups like that is that we live in a society, and in particular, I mean American society, that I think when you're, your average person reflects on its roots, they think of Rome, they think of Greece. And even though they know how important the Hebrew Bible, for example, is in American history, they don't typically think of like America as a Hebraic civilization, as sort of rooted in the knowledge and traditions and wisdom of the Hebrew world and of the Middle East more generally. But I think in a, from a historical perspective, from a serious historical perspective, you actually just take our founding history seriously. This is a Middle Eastern society that we're living in. It's just come so, so, so far from its roots. Now, the two of you, and, and Adela, we'll start with you, but like, feel free to jump in and just cut me off. But like, as two people kind of coming from much, much more recently than this country, a Middle Eastern background and heritage and, and tradition. What what do you think that, first of all, is important about Middle Eastern identity in a country like this? And what can this country kind of do better to sort of take more serious lessons from its Middle Eastern heritage? Like what, what can America learn from the Middle East today? I mean, like we're so used to thinking of the Middle East as an area that has like problems that need to be solved, but it's it, it does such an injustice to to that area. So what can we learn from the Middle East? And what do you guys as Middle Eastern, recent Middle Easterners bring to this conversation? That's a great question. And, and for this, um, I want to go back to Ottoman Aleppo. So if you go back to Ottoman Aleppo, um, it was a city that had a very large Christian community, a very large Jewish community, and a very large Muslim community. All three communities engaged in business together. All three communities, you know, engaged with each other to an extent. But at the same time, they all, you know, had their own religious institutions. They all also had their individual courts, though there was a unified 
Ottoman court. And the way that Ottoman Aleppo worked at the time was basically extremely libertarian. It was like you pay your taxes, but other than that, everyone just does whatever it is that they want to do. They can coexist. They can live within their community. Their communities have certain rules that if you break, you're handled by your own community. And unless you had inter-community violence, it wouldn't go up to the Ottoman courts. So I think that's one thing that you know the U.S., quote unquote, gets wrong. I think that right now on both sides, political left and political right, there's a hyperextension into personal lives of people. And I think that, you know, as a religious person, this country was founded on religious freedom. So seeing infringements from both the right and the left on, you know, the libertarian idea of you live your life, I live mine, that's something that's been relatively concerning. And, you know, as as a Jewish person from the Middle East, right, like we were Jewish in Syria, and then we were Jewish in Mexico, we've been going back and forth. The one thing that's remained has been our religious tradition. And the one thing that I'm always very scared of is that that's going to be something that's going to be attacked because it's something that makes you different. So that's, I think, what could be learned. I think it could be learned from the Ottoman Empire. It's just a greater idea of libertarianism. Wow, that's fascinating. Marin, what do you think? I feel like I could take those two ways and give you like a really serious answer about values of, of the Near East that we can take. And the other route, just to give you a fun answer, which I'm going to do, because Adela gave you a wonderful, serious answer. And I, I would love to see more hospitality. Uh, both of us have been to the Near East, and Ari, you've, I assume, been as yes, well. Yes, Okay. So there, there's like a open door policy, at least where I'm from, like doors don't close in the villages and, and even in Israel. That's right. You, you just, people take care of each other. And this kinship that forms because of that, uh, as, as a byproduct of that, is really special to me. And it's something that I hold dear to my heart and, and communities taking care of one another. This is amazing. I mean, I love this free, like liberty and community. Those are two things that often seem like they're intention. And yet what you can see in historically and even today in the Middle East is you can actually hold those two things together. And that's what makes your guys dynamics so wonderful. And I actually want to dig into that a little bit. Like, I'm curious from from either of you. One of the things that's so just intoxicating about the chemistry that you guys have and it like really pops on YouTube and on the pod is you guys are genuinely curious about each other and about excavating each other's identity and aspirations. What's the most maybe surprising question that either of you have gotten from the other? Or, or like, what's the one where you were like, whoa, like I, I wasn't expecting that. Right, right. I, there's, a, there's two that come to mind. So one, I, I think I get wrapped up in my own little world sometimes. And I think on the first episode, I like mentioned the, the Coptic cross tattoo very casually. And I mentioned that I got it when I was a baby and it's cops do this, like you give your ch children tattoos and it never really registered in my brain how crazy that sounds <laughs> to a non-cop. <laughs> yeah, we tattoo our babies. Um, so Adela, like we had to stop taping and she's like, what do you mean you have a tattoo and you got it when you were nine months? <laughs> like checking in on me. Guys, you know what we do to Jewish boys when they're babies? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is the tame version. <laughs> Yeah, and the other was, do you eat halal? Because she she knew I grew up in a Muslim-majority country. And the funny thing is, we did eat halal growing up because we had to. And then when we moved to the U.S., we still kept halal because that's all my parents knew. I do not keep halal anymore because I don't live in my parents' house. But in my parents' house, they still eat halal, even though that is a Muslim restriction. And we are not Muslim. But because cultures and religions, like, fuse into each other, cops keep halal because they live in a Muslim-majority country. Wow. 
That's fascinating. And Adele, what about you? Like, is there a question that you got that you were like, oh, I wasn't expecting that? Uh, I think not exactly that I wasn't expecting, but it's more like because I grew up in a Jewish community and then I went to Jewish state school my whole life, it's really refreshing to step out and be like, oh, I just said Sephardic and Ashkenazi as if people know what that is. <laughs> and, um, you know, there, there's so many things that are so obvious in my head. Like, I worry less about the Sephardi Ashkenazi divide and more about, like, you know, Shami Halavi. Like, that's been my greater question. So it's it's fun to take a step back and really, you know, like we did like an episode about Purim and I was like, okay, well, why do we do any of this? Why? Do, and like, it, it's not even just like the, the basics, but it's more like almost like explaining it again to myself. It's like relearning my own story. And I really like that. It's been fun. That's amazing. And I, I feel like one of the things that, that I laugh about is like, I, I'm sure this is true for every minority community, but like, in the Jewish community and certainly like in sub communities of the Jewish community, like the humor could be so specific that you forget how like inaccessible it is to someone who's like not in that. It's like, oh, it's like, you know, there's this guy I know who like people thought he went to Landers, but actually he went to Yeshiva University. Like, ha 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 ha. And like, no one gets that joke. Right. So, but one of the things that that's kind of inescapable about your show is that if you pitch it to somebody, one way to pitch your show is it's a Jew and a Christian talking to each other. When most people hear that in an American context, it's like, oh, this is like the whitish of all white people shows ever. And your show is most avowedly not that. So what can you guys or what do you feel that you've learned from this experience that you can teach people about sort of the Jewish Christian encounter that that you guys are doing in such a unique way where it's between, I mean, two non-white people who are uh, who are coming from just sort of, you know, backgrounds that I think your average person in this country or maybe even your average listener uh, to your podcast just like wouldn't assume that Jews and Christians come from like, what have you learned about that encounter and what can you teach about it? Well, what, what I've learned from this is that values transcend pretty much everything else, right? Because you look at us and you, you hear, yeah, a Jew and a Christian, but then you also hear an Egyptian Syrian and then you also hear, you know, we're both women, we both went to college in New York, we're both immigrants, we had all these experiences, but at the end of the day, our values come from the same place, right? It goes back to Marion was saying, like, the value of community, having your doors open, like, we'll we'll talk about the way that our families grew up, certain views, our parents, like, and we have so much in common. And I think that that's, you know, what everyone can learn about this is that values don't have to do with a specific upbringing. They don't have to do with a specific lived experience. Values are transcendent and values can be universal, especially if you communicate them. You know, we, we also always say it's very easy to be afraid of what you don't know. And then fear can transcend to hate, right? I didn't really grow up with a lot of non-Jewish friends. I went to Yeshiva Day School right? And a Syrian yeshiva day school. We don't know non-Jews. So, um, you know, stepping out of that bubble and saying like, this is a person so much like me in so many ways, that was really refreshing. And that was, you know, the show that like, you're not on your own, you're not by yourself, you're not the only person that even though you might only have your own experiences, other people's experiences have led them to the same conclusions. If I, if I can add one thing to that, I think the Jewish-Christian conversation tends to be like an East meets West conversation. And that dichotomy is like sometimes stuck in people's mind. And I think where we shift the conversation in different ways, it's it's an East meets East conversation because there, it's the theme of the world, that region, the Near East, everything that we know as a civilization, as humanity comes from there. You think we're all just going to look alike and, and talk alike and have the same mentalities and worship the same gods. Like there's so much to dig up and we have to reconcile within ourselves and the world should watch because everything comes from there. Therefore, we have to learn how to do things from there. I think I, I 
worded that pretty poorly, but I hope you got my message. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? That's beautiful. And 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 actually, it's a perfect transition point because one of the really exciting things, and I almost found myself when you guys talk to each other, like I sometimes find myself on the edge of my seat, like wondering what's going to come next, is when you guys, you know, learn about each other's communities and, and reflect in particular on how that kind of understanding has grown, either from hatred to love or ignorance to knowledge. And I'd love for you guys both to kind of reflect on that. Like, Mariam, what have you learned about, for example, Israel and and how what role Israel plays in your thinking from when you grew up to now? And, and Adela, I'd love to hear you kind of reflect on what it's been like to just learn about the Coptic community and how that's affected your thinking. Great, great question. So I grew up in an Arab household. Yes, we were Coptic, but culturally we're Arab. And Israel was always a dirty word at the dinner table and there was a lot of tension. And, you know, I I watched the Arab Spring where they screamed Zionist at Mubarak in the streets of Tahrir Square. And that that was my scope of Israel. It was a very cut and dry conversation. There was there was an end point and you got there pretty quickly. And then college happened and I took this class where it was an Israeli society, culture, and civilization or something like that. And the professor was actually Israeli, Duran Benatar, one of the best people I know. And part of the class was going to Israel for two weeks. And I was so, I was like that annoying kid in class that I, my hand was up before he even asked questions, ready to to talk about something. And we went to Israel and I, I had my whole world turned upside down. This was a place that I had talked about, read about, but the reality was so much different than what I, the world I had created in my own head. And I came back, and I, I'm very open about this, I, I came back a raging Zionist because I tried to find- The best kind. A reason, <laughs> yes, the best kind, everybody. <laughs> and I came back asking myself like, why am I not? And, and I kept looking for reasons to not be a Zionist, to not support the state of Israel while I was there, and I could not come up with an answer. And at its core, Zionism, and we talk about this in one of the episodes, and I think it's my favorite episode, because Zionism tends to have this cloud around it in the media, in mainstream media, that people attach different words to it. Zionism at its root is Jewish nationalism. It's the Jewish right to self-determine in the Holy Land, in the ancestral homeland of the Jews. And that as a standalone, how could you not, how could you not see that? <laughs> and I, I became, I was an angry college student because I thought I had been lied to my whole life, which I, I felt like I did. And I began reading and researching and applying to things like the Tikva Fund Fellowship, which shout outs to Tikva and Alan, great people over there. Um, and I just became curious, sometimes to a fault, which you'll realize about me, I'm just really, really curious. <laughs> and I started asking questions that there were no answers that fit my criteria of logic and reason. So I started to come up with my own, like what is a copt, what is a copt's opinion on Israel? What should a copt's opinion on Israel be? Does my identity dictate what I should think about these really complex, nuanced ideas and and problems? And unfortunately, there was nothing for me to read on that. So I had to come up with my own stuff. And that's that's the short story. Wow. That's that's really amazing. It's like an incredible, incredible journey. And Adela, like I'm curious how that either compares or contrasts with your journey, like meaning it's probably, I mean, if it's, I imagine that you and I, although I don't want to speak for you, but my, my guess, if I, you know, I had to kind of set up the, you know, choose the letters and the prices right going in, my guess would be that growing up, 
you knew as little about Coptic Christianity as I did. You know, I didn't go to a Syrian uh, day school, but I did go to like a relentlessly Ashkenazic day school, like in Long Island. <laughs> Coptic Christianity, like, wasn't on our, it wasn't a dirty word at the dinner table, but it wasn't on our radar. And I now feel like that was a huge desideratum growing up. I'm curious, like, what's been your journey learning about this community? Yeah, completely. I mean, we, we also talk about on the show, like, the moment I realized I was Arab, that I was an Arab Jew, was <laughs> at Yeshiva University holds a model UN uh, conference for high schools. And it's all these Jewish high schools. And they tell you that there's going to be Shabbat <laughs> food for dinner. And I was walking around and I'm looking at all these foods. And I see like Kugel, like, why is there a sweet pasta situation? <laughs> I was looking around and I was like, okay, so like, is there no Maza, Kibbe, Lachmajin? Are we going to have Maxi later? And I was just like, kind of confused that like Shabbat food in my mind meant something completely different. And I was just like, oh, I'm Arab. <laughs> What European Gentile catered this, right? Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, that that was my my moment of realizing, oh, I'm Middle Eastern. So it, forget that, you know, I didn't know what a Coptic Christian was. I didn't even know I was Middle Eastern. I thought I was just like wow. a Jew growing up Jewish, and then I realized I'm a very specific subset of Jew. So you know, going to college, I start getting all these encounters with non-Jews. You know, like for us, again, it's not about dirty word, but you know, like. Christians were Christians and we were Jews and we keep to ourselves. And my goal in college was to branch out. I didn't want to be the Jewish girl. I wanted, you know, to meet everyone else. So I didn't dorm in Weinstein, which is where all the Jews dorm. I didn't really spend all my time at the kosher cafeteria. I really just wanted to meet as many people as possible. I had a radio show. I was on hall council. And slowly it became very clear that as much as I'm Syrian, Lebanese, Mexican, when it came to my Judaism, that was the only thing I felt was a salient identity. That's what I felt made me different. And that's what I felt came under attack. I never felt attacked as a Latina woman at NYU. I never felt that my Middle Eastern identity was under attack. I always felt that it was always this question of Judaism, specifically as it relates to Israel. That's where, you know, I felt like I was different from my peers. So leaving college and meeting Mariam, it was just like this boom moment that not only am I Middle Eastern, she's Middle Eastern. And I get to learn about this whole other framework. Um, and, you know, when I explained to, let's say, my family or my friends right before we started the podcast, when I was like, yeah, we're starting this talk show on IGTV and this girl, her name is Mariam, and she's exactly like me, except not. So my journey has been wonderful. I'm learning about all these things. Yes, while we were on the first episode, she mentioned a tattoo I didn't know existed. And I was like, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. We'll touch on that later, but I had no idea what was going on. So it's it's interesting because I get to learn about Mariam. We, we only <laughs> met once, like twice in person, once on Zoom before we actually did the first episode. So I'm learning so much about her through all of this in process. And after our first episode, I actually like everyone who like messaged me like, this is great. I'm like, okay, what do you want to know about all of this? Because wow. I'm as lost as you guys are. So use your, like use me as your funnel for your questions. So um, I'm really lucky I'm in this position. I get to learn a lot and I get to teach a lot to people who, you know, follow me, Mariam and I have different audiences. So we get to introduce each other to our audiences. And I love that. Wow. That's amazing. You know, this week is probably a critically important week to have this kind of conversation for our communities, particularly. 
I mean, you follow the news over the last, certainly over the last year or two, so much terror directed against Coptic Christians. I mean, there are explosions, there are attacks on churches. This these last this last week or two has been a particularly difficult one for for Jews and for the Jews of Israel in particular, with the kind of terror attacks that make you think of like 2001, 2002. Um, it's a pretty scary time. When our respective communities suffer this kind of violence and terror, how are you guys able to be there for each other in a way that like maybe you wouldn't have imagined? Like, how does that play into your guys' relationship? Well, one thing I really, you know, appreciated was when Russia bombed, you know, the Bobby Yar Memorial in Ukraine to get to the tower, the the production tower, I think it was a TV tower. I actually hadn't even heard of anything that was going on. I was in class. I hadn't checked my phone. And it was in the American-ish chat that, you know, Myron was like, Adele, like, do you want to speak about this? You know, is this wow. something you want to use the the platform of Americanish for? So it's it's great because not not only do I have a, a co-host to be like a partner in crime, quote unquote, but Mariam is so educated and well versed and so informed on everything that I, I also don't feel like I'm by myself. Where it's like, well, what do I have to say about this? Or you know, I feel no pressure. I really do feel like I have a partner when it comes to fighting all of these things, and and, and that's a big thing that came from Americanish in the first place. You know, sometimes you feel you know Jews are such a small population, you feel like you're on your own no one really hears you you're on this fight on your own but no you have allies and i you know i want to be an ally for mariam i hope the time doesn't come where she needs an ally but either way you know i hope that me and my community can be there wow. it's it's really interesting for us to interact because we are cross referencing so many things like i obviously cops listen and, and follow me on social media and they don't really know Sephardic Jews or the Sephardic Jewish community as much as they should. And it's really interesting to when, when they see me post stuff about Jews in Israel and it's really interesting when Adela reposts any of my stuff or is vocal about the cops or just minorities of the region because I do care about the cops. They're my people. I feel their pain and but but it's it's sometimes good to scope out and look at the bigger picture and look at the region as a whole, minorities as a whole. And I feel so blessed that I have Adela as like a support system to fall back on. So I'm not just shouting in the void that is social media. <laughs> like, you know, they say if a tree falls in the in the middle of the forest, did it really fall or something? And having somebody that, you know, can talk about things that aren't just theirs she talks about my stuff, I talk about her stuff, feels like such a blessing. Wow. And that actually, I mean, it, it, it speaks to an additional commonality that you guys have, which is this isn't just two Middle Easterners. It isn't just two immigrants. It isn't just a Jew and a Christian. It isn't just, you know, the Middle East. It's also two women, which is another interesting part of your dynamic with each other. So how has that played into your encounter so far? And, and Mariam, I'm curious that you know, your perspective coming from your kind of background and Adela, your perspective coming from your background as well, because you guys bring so much that's the same, but also so much that's different to this conversation. Yeah, we talk about feminism in a very different way than what the mainstream conversation is right now. And I think it's totally captivating, like totally captivating. You think so? I'm, I know so. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, again, grew up in an Arab household. I'm the eldest of three girls. And as Americanish as I would like to say that my household was, it was more Arab than American because we were first, first gen immigrants and my parents were trying to find the balance between uh, what to adopt from this new culture that we're being introduced to versus what to keep away from your children and what to keep from your old culture. And there are very uh, rigid rules within our community, often unspoken about what career to take on and what you should speak about. And 
because we have this minority mentality, it becomes so internalized and you, it becomes the unspoken law of the land that you stay on a narrow and straight path, don't ruffle any feathers, don't talk about things that are controversial, don't get into any trouble because back home, if you were to get into any trouble, the price is very, very high. And us doing like this, just our, our exchange purely, us talking to each other on camera, is very much ruffling feathers. Us talking about things like Zionism and Israel and the Coptic plight is very, very much ruffling feathers within our own community. And we talk a lot about activism versus advocacy and not just having a microphone, but really standing for something. And women in this field, they're, they're, not, they're not a lot of us. So for us to come in, we have to be, I like to say 10 times as good for half the reward. We have to come in and know our stuff and, and do our due diligence and research and come in and as an authority figure. And are we gonna make mistakes? Absolutely, lots of them and perhaps, <laughs> but it's, it's up to us to make those mistakes because if nobody's making the mistakes, then nobody's doing anything, period. So do something and make mistakes and learn from them and, and keep going. I hope I answered your, your question totality. Maybe Adele will have some something interesting to say. I mean, I'll, I'll hop in and I'll just say, um, you know, one of the first things that we talked about was our similarities because we're both women from Arab households, right? And one thing that we had in common was certain uh, limitations on the kinds of educations our families wanted us to pursue. But we also had a lot of differences. So, for example, my mom always supported me going to college wholeheartedly, but she gave me a two-hour radius of what schools I can choose from. Um, <laughs> and she, my mom told me I should dorm, which is direct contrast to Mariam's parents. Um, on the flip side, because even though my family might be a little bit more westernized, the rest of my community, most of my female friends didn't really go to college, or they went for a year or two, then they dropped out and got married, or they got married because you know, they, they dropped out because they got married. They didn't drop out, then get married. Um, like college was never really a goal. I was the only girl in my AP calculus class. Like eight, growing up in high school, I knew that I had a certain path that wasn't typical of my community. And I'm very lucky I had my parents' whole support with that. And then you see someone like Mariam that has to put up the fight and change the conversation that her sisters can now have. So it's been great because it adds another layer. I think that as much as we both love, love, love our communities, and that's exactly what the show is about, love for our communities, we recognize there's a lot of areas where it can change and grow and us being that change and growth. It's not about flipping the table. It's about saying, I love this table. Let's make this table work for everyone. And, and, and I think that that's always been like the, the unifying theme of Americanish is that we really do love where we come from and we love our traditions. That doesn't mean that we're blind to the issues. It just means that the way that we pursue change is through a constructive way instead of trying to look back. And that's that's the difference between our feminism and the feminism that you often hear talked about here in the West, where feminism is all about how everything is limiting us and everything is horrible, where it's like, well, how about we take constructive steps? Let's work towards something better together instead of just being angry about things all the time. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't want to just speak for myself. I think Mariam is a shining example of that. I think that both of us being older sisters are trailblazers in this. And, you know, in just a couple of generations and a couple of years, you're going to see things changing in both of our communities. It already started in the Syrian community. And I think the Copt community is following suit. Wow. I mean, you guys are both so accomplished, so profound. It's it's. I, it's a, such a treat. Like I look forward to every episode. So I suppose just a last bit of reflection from each of you. I'm curious, like, what's the intervention that you guys want Americanish to have in the conversation, right? Like, if you guys are looking, 
you know, <laughs> who knows? This could be like a Law and Order or like the Simpsons deal where like you guys are on season like 37 of American-ish, right? But like at some point, you know, when the pod run comes to an end, you guys look back like what's the legacy of American-ish, right? Like what's the legacy that you guys are hoping to have with this show? If I had to say there's one goal of this is to connect communities. There are millions of cops, there are millions of Jews and other minorities, but I'll just speak for the two that I know very well and the ones that we portray on Americanish that live right next door. Yet there's no communication, no collaboration, no like there's no meeting point for for us and because we both have large diasporas let me just talk about new york there's cops and and jews more than you can count of both communities and why don't they know that about each other and why aren't they having the tough conversations about their roots and where they can share deep meaningful connections and if our conversation sparks that and and the first conversation might be tough because there's a lot of reconciliation to do and conflict resolution to do and that stuff's not easy at all um and the first if the first conversation's tough the second one's tough the third one will be easier and the fourth will be easier and so forth so that's my goal to connect communities to see how we can build bridges and and we can take care of each other yeah, I, I completely agree. I think connecting communities is the main goal of Americanish, and I also think you know we're both atypical people to hear from who have had very different experiences but very similar. So I think that a secondary goal that we have is saying things that a lot of people in our position have felt, but no one has said out loud. And we've been getting messages since Americanish came out. Like I have a friend who's um, a Greek immigrant. She's not Jewish. She's just from Greece. And she says, yeah, I felt exactly the same way, or I had the same experience going to college. Or And it, we have my friend Mia, who is, you know, she's from Dubai. She's also Brazilian. And, you know, we had a whole episode about, you know, what languages do you dream in? Or, you know, are you insecure in certain languages? And she relates so much to this. So I think the secondary goal is finally saying what we've all been feeling and showing that you're not alone in these experiences. There's a lot more people like us, a lot more people who are Americanish than you might think. So I think it destigmatizes the conversation, opens the door and saying, this is how we've navigated this. Not saying that we did a great, great job, but we've navigated a lot of these difficult conversations and they're conversations that you can have too. So that's, that's I think, the secondary goal. Amen. Adela and Mariam, thank you so much for coming on Good Faith Ever. Tell the people, where can people find Americanish? Like, where can you get it? Uh, at Americanish Show on Instagram, same for YouTube. Um, we'd love to see you there. We're also now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is brand, brand new. So check us out on primarily Instagram, YouTube, and podcasts. Folks, head into Apple Podcasts, give it a five-star rating and a review. Do uh, do us all a favor and let's get this thing shooting up the charts. Adele and Mariam, thank you guys so much for coming aboard. Thank you so much, Ari. Really pleasure seeing you. Thank you. Society sits right at the nexus of grand traditions of liberty and community, the freedom to be apart, and the courage to come together. So put differently, our greatest societal strengths here in America are our political system and our religious story and roots. And those goods can be in tension with each other, but they can also produce this wondrous, inspiring alchemy that can lift up our respective communities and even the world at large. 
Now, of course, we're at a particularly perilous moment in the history of our republic where we're in danger of losing both, or if not losing exactly, then letting them lapse and transform through our decadence and complacency. So it's precisely at moments like this that thinkers and doers like Mariam and Adela are so essential. The work they're doing to use difference to produce togetherness and transform ignorance or even enmity into community is incredible. And I pray that each of us will do our part in pushing that work forward in days, months, and years to come. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating five stars only because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.